So it seems like recently, or maybe it's just like a fact of my life, I, I live in this paradox. A paradox in which part w- one is, I'm always just filthy. I'm just dirty all the time. Like, I come home at the end of every day, I'm just covered in something that I need to shower off. Most recently, it's because I'm out at our new building and we're just working all the time. I'm out there two or three days a week, and right, if you worked out at the building with us, you know this. You leave with like this film on you, like a dust, and you're just like, what is in there? Because we're just doing construction and we're sanding things and we're cutting things and it's just in the air. So I come home and I just shower off. I'm a mess. Or, after I get done with that, like last week, uh, my son and I ended up working on his truck for a while, and he needed to have his, his whole black back uh, brake stuff replaced. So we're talking rotors and the calipers and the pads and everything. And he had some kind of leak going on with his radiator. So we had to hunt that down and fix it. Covered in grease up to my elbows. Have you discovered the orange soap? Anybody know about it? You got to get you some of the orange soap. We got the liquid kind and we keep one in every shower, every sink because I'm just gross every day. I'm a, I'm a mess. After that, we went and worked on a riding lawnmower for a, a while. Uh, last night, I'm just at home. Even in my leisure time, like I'm chilling. I found this uh, chainsaw recently that I wanted to get running. So like I'm out there for like two hours covering gas and grease and working on a chainsaw. I'm a mess. But here's the paradox. I hate messes. Like I'm a neat freak. I'm constantly picking things up. I'm the guy who's always like, put your stuff in the room. If there's dishes in the sink, I'm washing them. I'm like, or I'm more like get my kids like, why did you leave dishes in the sink? You know, dad's going to freak out about the dishes in the sink. If there's dishes clean in the little drainer thing, I know you guys want it to evaporate. It'll be there later. You can put it. Me, I'm like, get a towel. It could be done in five seconds. Let's put it away. So I'm constantly putting things up. I'm constantly out tidying up my little workshop. I'm constantly, like when we're in here, I'm always the guy taping down the cords and everything. It's this paradox that I live in because it's like, I'm always in a mess, but I don't like messes. And here's the thing about that. That'll preach. (laughs) That's good stuff. There's a tension. There's a tension between the mess and the clean that I think God is leaning into really heavy with us every single day. And so let me catch you up on where we are right now. We're in a teaching series called Sent to the City, Building God's Kingdom in Wilmington. And it's really inspired by this big transition that we're in. Our church, guys, we're almost 10 years old. And I got to tell you, you guys are rock stars. We have been a mobile church for almost 10 years, taping down cords and gym floors and making coffee in a kitchen that we don't own and putting our kids in the gym, you know, playrooms in the back. Like, we've been doing this for a long time, but we're making this transition to a building that we bought early this year. We've been renovating. We, we hopefully will be in it within, fill in the blank, I'll tell you the date. Uh, very soon, very soon, weeks, we're weeks away. Oh, I didn't share. Uh, drywall went up this weekend. I mean, it's almost, there's a lot, there's some left to do. They got to tape it and mud it, and there's some places they got to fill in. But can we just cheer for drywall? I've never been more excited. I have never been more excited to see drywall in my life. I'm walking around last night, I'm just like filming it, and I was going to post it, but it's boring. So I'll get a posted thing, and you can see a, a cool one later. But um, we're making this move, and we want to kind of re-enter this mentality. We've always been a church every single week that says, we got to leave here and shine light in dark places. That's our mission. That's our goal. But with this transition, new things will come into, you know, into view that we don't even know about yet. So we're just reminding ourselves, the last several series have been this kind of mentality about what does it mean for us to have that in our forefront. We were sent to this city. In week one, the catchphrase was, love where you live. But we looked at the, st- the story of Nehemiah. And the idea was not just love where you live like the location, but love the people who live where you live. And so what did Nehemiah do? This was kind of our big thing. We said the first thing he did was he wept over his city. He was heartbroken. Do you have empathy for the people that you live near? Do you care? Do you know the plight of the broken? Like, what's going on? Uh, The second thing we see Nehemiah do is pray. And his prayer wasn't like, dear Lord, send some people to come fix this. No, his prayer was a prayer of repentance. His prayer was like, Lord, change my heart and change their heart and help us get back to you. And then the third thing was he started building a wall. I said, take action. So he's building a wall 
What are the actions you've been working on? Like, what are some people that you've been trying to engage, some things you're trying to do? That's Nehemiah's story, love where you live. The second week, which was last week, we looked at the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus was at their house, and it was just kind of debacle about who was doing the best thing. But anyway, the whole idea was we've got to make time to love well. If we're going to love people well, we've got to make it part of our schedule. Because of course you're too busy to help your neighbor. Of course you're too busy to go join something, volunteer or something, be involved, love. Of course you are. So you have to make time for that. And this week what I want to do is kind of cross maybe the biggest hurdle, I don't know, maybe the biggest hurdle to being sent to our city. And that is that we're just downright scared of it. If you're old enough, you remember a TV show that was on, uh, you know, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s. And it, and it, and it was uh, Fear Factor. Remember Fear Factor? So if you don't know Fear Factor, it was, it was the dumbest show. There was a time in life where every night on TV, someone was trying to win a million dollars. That was that was the goal. Every TV show, you could win a million dollars. I just introduced my kids to um, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, by the way. And my daughter was like, this show's dumb. I'm like, I know, but it was really popular. Jeff Foxworthy was funny, I promise. Um, I don't know, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up. But, um, so, but the, the idea of fear factor was this, like, let me make a contestant face a big fear. So they're swimming with sharks, they're picking up snakes. They're like, there's always a box of roaches, wasn't there? There's always like a big giant spider. Uh, I said that just for Perry, because he has a roach phobia. So just, if you have a little plastic one, just uh, don't bring it near him. Take, take it near him. Um, but so here, here's the idea. The idea of fear factor was, if you want this, you're going to have to face a fear. And the reality is that we would rather stick our hand in a box of roaches sometimes than to step out of our comfort zone and really live out our faith in certain scenarios. You know what I mean? Because, man, it's messy. It's dirty. There's a paradox there. People are messy. The only way to really do what God's called us to do is to step into the mess and help bring his healing. But we have a fear of it. So let's kind of address that this morning. I want to talk about it and I want to ask, what do we do when people are messy? And how can we bring God's love to that? If you've got a Bible, grab it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today. Luke chapter 7. Uh, Luke is uh, one of the biographies of Jesus' life. we got four of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I've encouraged us to be a church that brings your Bibles, bring notebooks, take notes. Uh, but if you don't have that, we got Bibles in the back that you're welcome to borrow. It's right there by the door. There's a gray shelf. Go grab one. You can use it during the service. Keep it if you need a Bible or just use it and put it back when you're done. Or by all means, look it up on your phone. There'll be scripture on the screen behind me. Uh, as you look to Luke chapter 7, uh, let me give you a little, uh, a little catch up, okay? So once again, we're going to find Jesus at a meal. Last week, he was with Mary and Martha. This week, he's kind of the guest of honor at a guy named Simon's house. We spent five weeks talking about a guy named Simon Peter a couple weeks ago. This is not the same Simon. This is Simon the Pharisee. And honestly, we don't know a whole lot about this guy. But we do know a lot about the Pharisees at the time when Jesus lived. And so I could give you a little bit of a profile on what I think Simon might have been like. Uh, the Pharisees were uh, a leading political party. In the area that Jesus worked in. And the thing that they were, if there's like, you know, uh, Republicans and Democrats and one is more conservative and one is more progressive, then like in this time, the more conservative group was the Pharisees, okay? And the thing that they were super conservative about was Old Testament law. They really wanted you to make sure you knew Old Testament law, you followed it. This was a, a culture that their whole like government was based on biblical law. And then they were also overseen by the Roman government. It was complicated. And so the Pharisees were famous for being super conservative. And in, on their best days, they were trying to follow God. I think they were doing a, a pretty good job. I mean, I look at the Pharisees, I'm like, hey, I probably need to learn a lot from them. But on a bad day, and these are the things that Jesus was constantly calling them out for, they were too legalistic about it. They famously created like hundreds of extra laws 
just to be stair-step law so that you don't break the big law, which seems like a great idea, but what it caused them to do was miss out on God's most important things like mercy and justice because, man, I can't go talk to that person because they're messy and they're dirty and they make me break my little law so I don't break the big law. And so Jesus is constantly having conflict with these Pharisees. And uh, though Jesus was blameless, he was sinless, they didn't like him. They didn't like the way he taught about God. They didn't like the way he hung out with ugh, messy people. He's hanging out with sick people. He's hanging out with broken people. He's hanging out with people with bad reputations. He's hanging out with uh, government officials that aren't Jewish. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors was how they summarize it. Messy people. So when we pick up in Luke chapter 7, we'll be in verse 36. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. That's the setting. Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. He's actually with a bunch of Pharisees, it looks like. And a really messy person walks in. Let's pick it up, 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She's our messy person. So she came in with an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him and she, at his, behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears then she wiped them with her hair, she kissed them, she poured perfume on them. I cannot read this story without saying, that's weird. That is really weird. Imagine you got some friends over at your house, and like your buddy's there, and it's like, he's like, hey, yeah, I made this uh, port for you, and you're making the port. And then this weird person walks in behind your friend, like gets down the, behind him at his feet, and just starts crying all over his feet, washing his feet with her head, spraying like Axe body spray, like on his feet. You're like, what are you doing? Like, what's this? Like, this is weird. Okay, so, so, there's a lot of cultural things going on here. Okay, so, let's take the weirdness aside, and let's look. There's also a beauty to it. There's a beauty to it. So, there's a lot of details we could get into. I actually talked through this story back in, like, October, I think. And this story happens in Mark, I think, and also we're in Luke. And in the different Gospels, sometimes you get the same story, story told for, kind of for different reasons and from different perspectives. And so, we looked at some different details here. The detail I want to look at here, just a couple. The first detail I want to look at here is this, this alabaster jar. Uh, we could talk a lot about it. A lot of scholars have made a lot of speculation about it. Here's the thing I want you to understand, I think is implied by the fact that she's got this alabaster jar. It's valuable. It's very, very valuable. It's a sealed container that the only way to get this, this oil out, it's an essential oil, basically. So you guys who are all in essential oils, there it is in the Bible. But uh, it has to be broken. You have to break the, the container to, to get it out. That's the way it works. And it's worth, they estimate, a year's wages. So I just looked up like the median income in North Carolina and over the past couple of years, it's something like $55,000. Okay, so do you have a little jar at your house worth $55,000 that you would then take to someone's house and then like pour it all over their feet? So there's a gesture being made here. This is very valuable and she's doing something very weird with it. So there's her. Then the other thing happens that I want to point out is the reputation of the lady. So verse 39, we'll look at it again. It says, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Okay, so she's doing this elaborate thing with the oil in the jar. Okay, that's happening. And then the other people in the room are like, ugh. You know someone with a reputation like that? Maybe you can think back to like high school, because we were real bad about that in high school. We'd be like, well, you know them. 
Like, you don't even know anything about them, but you've, like, totally formed a whole picture in your mind of, like, everything about them, right? To the point where other people, when you talk about that person, you can't even think of a good thing to say. Like, this is how I'm imagining that they view this person. Uh, Maybe there's someone in your family who's kind of that person. Maybe it's a guy from your childhood, someone that you grew up with. Maybe it's it's just one of those people who can never seem to make good decisions. It's like, what's wrong with you? Like, why do you keep on... Like, kicking yourself in your own face. Like, how is this even happening? The black sheep, the needy person. These are the people that you look at, and, and, and these Pharisees are looking at her and saying, she's no good. She's not worth our time. She's not worth our attention. And if Jesus only knew the trash that she is, we don't know what she, like, what her story is. You can speculate. I don't think there's any value in that. All we know is that these guys had formed a very strong stereotype and, and opinion of her. And here's the thing. Those things may have been true. <laughs> like, really. Some of the things they thought about her might have absolutely been true. But people like this can be messy. What do we do with them? How do we get in their life? Verse 39, it said, Do you know what kind of woman this is? That she is a sinner? So let's step out of this ancient story, okay? And I want you to kind of figuratively or maybe literally hold your hand in front of your face like a mirror, okay? Okay? If you were looking at your own face in the mirror, your own eyeball, eyeballs looking back at you, couldn't this be said about you, that you're a sinner? I just want to throw that out there. Like, because what is sin? sin? Sin is this thing of like going against God's best for you. It's dishonoring God. Sometimes it's deliberate. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's not, you know, you don't, you don't really know. And then you find out like that was bad. You can sin against other people. Sin is a very big part of our life. It's why Christianity exists, and frankly, it's why there are so many religions in the world. Because we all are aware of our own brokenness, our own messiness. But it's really easy for us to look at her, down on her floor, sobbing and snotting and wiping her hair on on Jesus' feet, like, ugh. But like, shut up. Like, guys in the room and us looking in the mirror, you are jacked up. And so we got to realize this. So I want to, it's easy for us to look at this picture and be like, we're watching from Jesus' perspective. Or I'm the guy, I'm not getting involved. I'm just in the back. Watch. But like, in reality, I think more of us would be the woman on the floor. Okay? It's a mess. Messiness. Mess, messy has been a buzz phrase in the Christian world for a couple of years. Uh, a book came out a couple of years ago talking about mess, and, and at least in some circles that I run in. And, and I read a book about messiness and loving messy people recently, and I want to kind of share a picture with you. So imagine between my two fingers, I'm stretching a rubber band. In fact, you might want to do that. Pretend. You've done this, right? Hair band, something. Okay. You got this thing. Okay. And so here's the illustration of, of what we do with the mess. Okay. On this finger, this pointer finger, this is our mess. Is our brokenness. It's the inconvenience that we cause people or that they cause us. It's the sin in our life. It's the things that are going on. Uh, it's the hurt. It's the sin. Okay, this is the mess. But on this thumb, thumbs up, is love. Okay? There's a tension between the love and the mess. Because loving people isn't just about loving people when it's easy. Loving people isn't just about like, well, I'm going to do this when it's convenient. Ideally, love, God's love, is, it doesn't have any boundaries. They just, it's just love because I, you exist and therefore I love you, right? Now, God can do this and we have a hard time with it. Because when you put some tension between that mess and that love, there's a stress in the middle. If you put too much tension, like I want to love you, I want to love you in your mess, but if you put too much tension on that, I give up. The rubber band breaks. Parents, have you ever hit this moment? 
You know, especially if you have adult kids and you've had to make the hard decision of like, you're just going to have to go figure this out for a while. It's a hard, hard tension to be in. Your neighbor that you're like, man, if their dog poops in my yard one more time, I'm going to kick that little thing through some uprights. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've, I have heard people get so angry about their neighbor's dog. I'm like, you really need a massage, I think. It's, it's time to relax. Like, but we get this tension. Now, here's the thing. The, the author uh, of the book is called Messy Grace. He says the tension between the mess and the love, that tension on that rubber band is called grace. That's how we deal with it. The question is, how much grace can you have? How much can you stand the pressure? How much tension can you take? Grace is the tension between our imperfect actions and God's perfect love. And so when you look at this woman, you see these people who have no grace. When you look at the people in your life that are messy, you have to ask yourself, how much grace? And then again, we're looking in the mirror and we ask ourselves, how much tension have I put on my relationship with God? How much tension have I put on my relationship with other people? Is there grace? And the trick with loving people the way that God loves people is to learn to live in that tension. And it ain't easy. Because people are messy. Some people are walking red flags. <laughs> You're like, look, I know if I get involved with you right now, it's going to be the next six months of my life. And I've done that before and I don't want to do it again. There's a real scar tissue there for a lot of us. But for us to be sent to the city, for us to be the church, okay, so we're doing this collectively. We've done this with a handful of um, families and individuals in the last 10 years. And I think a handful of you would know, like if I was just, a, I wouldn't talk about them uh, openly, but it's just like, you know, we know this has been a long struggle with some individuals. And it's okay. Because the trick is to learn to hold that tension and bring people closer to the love of God. Because what happens when the mess cleans up? You're closer to the love of God. It's a beautiful picture. It's not a perfect analogy, okay? There's holes in it, but it's, it's a picture. And that mess can be scary. It can be fear factor. It can be a paradox. Let's get back to the story. Okay, verse 39. I'm going to read that one more time. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, they said to himself, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. Okay, and then Jesus is like, bro, you don't know what I know. Okay, so he leans in verse 40. Simon. I have something to tell you. Simon says, tell me, teacher. And Jesus launches into this parable. It's a story he's going to tell to kind of make his point. So let's just listen to Jesus teach for a second. Jesus says, imagine two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them would love him more? That's the question. That's the scenario. One person owes 50 bucks. Other person owes 10 times more, $500. That's the scenario. But neither one of them had the money to pay him back. The, debt, the lender said, you know what? I forgive you both. Which one of them would love him more? So the Pharisee, Simon, thinks about it. Verse 43, he says, well, I suppose the one that had the bigger debt. Good job, Simon. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. Then he turned towards the woman and he said, Simon, do you see this woman? She came into your house. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman has not stopped kissing my feet till she, since she got in here. You did not pour, pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet, very expensive and valuable perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. 
as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Pause there. There's so much I could unpack for right there. But this is a moment, one of the many moments in Jesus' life where he's a, he's a rabbi. Okay, him being a rabbi wasn't monumental. I mean, they were rabbis. Rabbis are just teachers, uh, similar maybe to just pastors. We got, you can hardly throw a rock in a coffee shop in Wilmington without hitting a pastor, okay? We're everywhere. All right, there's so many pastors, okay? And so there's like, he's just a rabbi, okay? But then he has the audacity to tell this woman, your sins are forgiven. That's the job of a priest, in fact, that's a job only reserved to like God and sacrifices and a whole system of laws and stuff. So for this guy at Simon's house to look at her and be like, your sins are forgiven. This is one of many moments where Jesus kind of crosses a line where people sit up and notice. And they're like, what? Rabbis don't say stuff like that. And later he's going to make some really bold claims. He's going he's to be arrested for a lot of those claims. He's going to be executed. Then he's going to start showing up alive again. The resurrection. And a lot of people who heard him say those things are going to remember those things and wonder, wait, was I in the presence of God in the flesh? The Messiah? That's the claim Jesus is going to begin to make. But in this moment, this, this little thing happens and this woman, she looks up, she's like, my sins are forgiven. Now here's the thing, why did the woman come to the house? I think it's because she believed that Jesus, this teacher, this rabbi, who had promised healing, who had taught about forgiveness, could offer her a fresh start. These religious leaders who knew the Bible better than anybody in their little town, no doubt about it, hadn't given her the time of day. They wouldn't even let her in the house. Jesus acknowledges that she can have a fresh start. He lives in that tension. In the last of the line there, verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. That's how we exit the presence of Jesus. In peace. Knowing that no matter what the background, no matter what the baggage, when we come to him in humility, in repentance, that he can give us a fresh start. Isn't this an amazing way to tell the story of Jesus? What a weird story. This lady comes in, she's sobbing and crying all over his feet. Now, there was a lot of stuff that he said in there. It was cultural stuff. People should have washed his feet if he was the guest. There was like an anointing with oil that could have happened. Like, basically, he was like, y'all ain't do none of that for me. And I'm supposed to be your guest of honor. And this lady off the street came and showed me that respect. At its core, this story is a story about forgiveness. God's grace. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, there's possibility for forgiveness. A fresh start. God's love. So let's put ourselves in this woman's shoes. And these self-righteous people looking at us. Or, maybe you've been one of those self-righteous people looking down at other people. And you need to get off your high horse and realize that you're on the same ground as the rest of us. The beauty of the story of Jesus is that he steps into our mess and he cleans it up. What do we do with messy people? <laughs> what do we do when we are a hot mess? I want to read you a couple of scriptures. I want to give us a challenge, and we'll just let that marinate and see how that does for us for the rest of the week. But um, remember, in week one, we talked about loving, loving, uh, loving where you live, like loving the people where you live. There's fear involved in that. 
Like, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved because people are difficult. People are weird. People are odd. And, and I don't know what your sphere of influence is. Like, think about this because it's going to be a little bit different for all of us. For some of you, it's just your kids at home. Like, you don't leave the house and it's just you there and that's fine. But you have neighbors next door. Are there people who need the love of Jesus that you could step into their mess? Uh, some of you may have coworkers and people that you see every day. And you kind of avoid them because it's complicated. Or you might be super bold and you're stepping out and you're making new friends because you're super extroverted and you just get out there. But for what purpose? To fill your extroverted gas tank or because people need the love of Jesus? And what type of people are we engaging with? What, what we find often is that we just kind of gravitate to the people that are easy and the people that are fun to be with. You know why? Because that's a lot more fun. <laughs> I, I don't like hanging out with people to stress me out. I don't like hanging out with people who got so many problems that I can't even deal with my problems, right? But what does it mean to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a city? There's a tension there. Is it okay to have good friends that are easy to hang out with? I sure hope so. I sure hope so because I got a lot of them. A lot of you are sitting in this room right now. But are we not called to be in the lives of people who need a little help? Secondly, has somebody stepped into your life to relieve that tension? I mean, think about the person. You're here. You, you made it here this far, okay? Why? How? Who, who gave you some grace that made you feel like it was okay to be here right now? Like at least this far. And you, most of us have a much broader story than just today. It's hard. So I want to show you these two scriptures. The first one is this. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, okay, suffer for what is right. When First Peter was written, the church was going through inter- intense persecution. We live in America where uh, we, uh, we don't have much persecution. I talked to a friend this week recently who said, I get picked on at work about my faith. And both of us agreed that that's probably not persecution. <laughs> that's just like a little bit of jabbing. Persecution, you know, we're talking about around the world, people are losing their life. When people are saying, listen, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if you did, I'm going to have to probably take your life. Like that's, that's persecution that First Peter's going through here. But there is some suffering, there's some pain, there's some fear. But even if you should suffer for what is right, check it out, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Why does that help? Well, it's because they can't scare me, they can't hurt me. The king of the universe is my Lord, and he's got my back. Always be prepared to give an answer. To anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So there is some conversation there. The answer, give the answer for the faith that you have. We normally use this verse to talk about like apologetics. Like what are the answers to the hard questions, stuff like that. But I love that it's actually written in the context of people who were scared of being hurt for their faith. That's the context of 1 Peter. It's like, so yeah, you should be prepared. Because if someone comes to you and says, why do you believe what you believe? Or why are you even helping me? You can say, well, listen, I'm doing it for this reason. I can't fill in that blank for you, by the way. That's not my job. That's your job. <laughs> but what is the reason for the faith that you have? Um, you don't have to be scared, though. There's a fear factor, but it's worth it. Second thing, this is 2 Timothy 1.7. This is a very short passage. Um, but the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy. The spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. It's important to remember that as we go into the world and we work with people that are messy, that if you have Jesus, you have his Holy Spirit, you have a spirit of power. 
And I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table or across the parking lot or next to someone in the car, and they open up to me about something, and I'm like, I have no idea what to say right now. I don't know how to deal with this. And then I turn inwardly, and I've, and I've talked to God about it. I said, Lord, just give me some answers. Often God's like, well, just shut up. You don't need to say anything. Just sit there. They just need to talk. Okay, good, because I ain't nothing to say. But then other times, I'll feel like some words will come out of my mouth, and the person's like, thank you for saying that. God gives us his spirit as a deposit for the rest of the promise. He said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you unprepared. You're not alone in this scary world. We can go out and be with messy people. Um, This world is messy. This neighborhood is messy. This city is messy. We watch a, um, you ever heard of CNN 10? It's like a 10-minute recap of the whole day. If you're in like public high school, I think you watch it every day, don't a lot of you? Yeah, okay. So you guys watch that. What's the guy's name? Coy Wire, is that his name? Yeah, the new guy. Um, so anyway, it's a 10-minute recap. So our kids watch that for school. And my daughter said the other day, she's like, I know, I feel really good about like world events. I know what's happening. We don't ever watch the local news. And I said, we don't want to watch the local news. <laughs> you don't want to know. And it was a joke, but it's for real. Because it's easy to look at the world and be like, ah, I'm terrified all the time. But we got a God who's got our back. We have a spirit that doesn't bring us timidity, but brings us strength, power, and dis- discipline. And so we don't have to go through the world every day like Chicken Little because the sky's falling. Walk out boldly because your God loves you. All right. How do you wrap up this talk? I have no idea. I couldn't decide. Um, but I want to give us a challenge. Here's a challenge for today. Uh, the challenge is practice grace. <laughs> the challenge is practice grace. But here's some more words to help. So this week, I want to encourage you to identify a messy relationship that you are, or maybe you should be, navigating. So that's the first half. Navigate a messy relationship. You probably already know what it is because right now you're frustrated at that person. Or there's a text that you haven't replied to yet or one that you sent that was probably too long. What's a messy relationship that you're working in? The interesting thing is that God doesn't always just call us to find extremely random people that we've never met before. Uh, He's already got us in community with people. How do we love with the love of God and live in that tension? So identify a messy relationship that you are or should be navigating right now and find a specific way to lean into the tension with the love of Jesus. When we hit tension in relationships, we want to hit the road. Am I right? Like, I'm done. I want to be done. I want to slam the phone. I want to block the call. I want to leave the office. I want to go away from the thing, wherever we are. But to love like Jesus, we've got to lean into the tension. Now, is there a time where the rubber band breaks? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. And I think that that's sometimes the tough love that is required. And that's why you shouldn't do this uh, in isolation. Do this in community. Like, have someone that you're like, listen, I'm going through this. Not a gripe fest, not a gossip fest. They're not helping you if they're doing that. But someone say, I really genuinely want to love this person. Can you help me? Can you help me take these steps? Lean into that tension with the love of Jesus. Jesus gives us a commission. We have a goal. The whole reason we're doing this sent to the city thing is, is really because of the last thing he said to his disciples. And this is the last thing I want to share with you this morning. Matthew 28, verse 18. We've looked at it a bunch of times. Let's look at it again. Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And if you think there's not going to be messiness in that, you're wrong. There's tension. But listen, he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end 
of the age. It might get messy, but do not fear. Jesus is with you. Let's pray about that this morning.